0: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and UtahHumanities.org, improving communities through active engagement with the humanities. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in
1: February.
2: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're going to talk with Sharon Shattuck, director and producer of the documentary film Picture a Scientist, which offers a sobering portrait of struggles women face in pursuing studies and careers in science. We'll also be talking with Sarah Freeman, USU Assistant Professor of Biology, and Sojung Lim, USU Assistant Professor of Sociology, and we'll be hearing sound clips from the film. We're glad you're with us today. We bring in Sharon Shattuck. Welcome to the program.
3: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: Good
2: good, to, good to talk to you. Uh, and uh, Sarah Freeman, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Yeah, glad to be here.
2: Good to have you. And uh, Southern Lim, sorry, for uh, uh, joining it's us now. okay. <laughs> <laughs> am, I pronoun- am I pronouncing your name correctly? Yes. Okay. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, we appreciate it. Let me start with uh, Sharon Shattuck. Um, I, I should mention that this uh, film... Uh, was affected by COVID, right? You were you were scheduled to premiere this at the Tribeca Film Festival, um, yeah. <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> uh, and then uh, released yeah. virtually in May, I guess.
3: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we were we were supposed to premiere last year on I think it was like April 28th or something um, at Tribeca, and oh, man, we were we were very excited. <laughs> we were we were like finishing up the film in March. And it was like right as COVID started to hit and um, a previous festival South by Southwest was canceled. And we just kind of saw the writing on the wall. <laughs> we were like, oh, no. Um, but, you know, luckily we so we were able to, to kind of do a virtual theatrical where we we ended up partnering with 47 different theaters around the country to do like a little two week theatrical run. Um, and then from there, it's just taken off i mean it's like we're, we're still we're doing a bunch of educational screenings right now um with partners like utah and um and then it'll it'll go everywhere from there so yeah we're really excited
2: yeah wonderful uh so how did you how did you come to this uh, topic I, I i read that you uh you have a degree in forest ecology for example along with journalism
3: yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i you know it's funny i like I, I've talked about this before, but yeah, like I've never had, I didn't have an experience like the scientists in our film um, as an undergraduate, luckily. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I, I looked at a lot of, you know, you kind of like look at the path of a lot of people in science and I, I do wonder now, like given what I know, like if I would have started to have those issues as I kind of moved up because a lot of the women we talked to at MIT, um, they kind of started to, you know, experience these things as they became more senior and as they were starting to compete for resources with their colleagues and grants and, fun, you know, all that kind of stuff. But um, I really came to this film because uh, a woman at MIT Press, Amy Brand, she told my, my producing partner, Ian Cheney, and I about Nancy Hopkins and we never heard of her before. And as we, like, we looked into her story and the story of the MIT-16, which are these women who basically, like, they realized that they were not getting the same resources as their male colleagues. And they didn't really know at the time, like, what the extent of that was. But they were, they just, like, had a suspicion, and they could kind of see with their own eyes that they, were, they had less lab space, for instance. Um, so, so, you know, because they're scientists, they decided to collect data and once they had that data in front of them, they realized, like, oh, absolutely, there is a
4: disparity here.
3: Um, and that's kind of the basis of where we started with the film. Um, but we soon realized we didn't want to just focus on the MIT story. We wanted to, you know, kind of look at the, like, the, there's a lot of issues still happening with women in science. And, you know, so we wanted to kind of look at the whole spectrum and try to find a few stories that could represent, you know, different places on that um, Iceberg,
2: if you will, the gender iceberg that we talk about in the film. Well, let's uh, let's. I've got four clips from the film, uh, perhaps just about a minute and a half, uh, two minutes each, and I, I want to get into the first one here. This is the very opening of the film. Um, geologist Jane Willenbring, one of the one of the main scientists that you talk to throughout the film, um, and just a little. I don't know if you want to to set this up a little bit, but I guess the the, the key thing to know is that Jane Willenbring was. Uh, suffered, I don't know, severe bullying and and harassment in the field, in fact, in Antarctica. Um, so, yeah. uh, anything else you want to say before we hear this clip?
3: Um, yeah, I think yeah, she was she was a grad student um, in Antarctica, just you know, isolated away from anybody else um, when this was happening. Yeah, I think that's all. Right.
2: Yeah, and now this is several years later. So let's let's hear this is clip number one.
5: I had a three-year-old daughter, and she came to the lab with me one weekend. I had told her that I was a scientist before, and I don't think it had really clicked in her mind that I was actually a scientist. (laughs) And so she came to the lab with me, and I had my booties, and I was wearing a Tyvek suit, gloves and goggles the whole get up and she looked at me and she was just like you really are a scientist mommy and then she said I want to be a scientist just like you and that was the horrible like <laughs> sort of lose it triggering moment that I uh, have ever had and um I actually started crying at the time, and I, you know, she's three, so she doesn't understand why I'm crying. And so I told her that they were happy tears, but they weren't just happy tears. I was thinking about someone treating her like trash in 20 years, like I had been treated like trash. The one thing that I could do to help her the most is to try and make the whole enterprise something that is welcoming to women. And that was something that I hadn't done.
2: So it's Jane Willenbring, a geologist, uh, talking about the the effects. And I don't know how many years this was after what happened in Antarctica, but uh, several years later, uh, still obviously getting very emotional there and and wrapped up with this interesting dynamic yeah. with her with her daughter she wants her daughter to to be able to go into science yeah. right
3: yeah yeah i think that for her i mean so so that was i think that anecdote was like about 18 years after what had happened to Jane in antarctica um it might have been like 17 years later but yeah it was a long time you know and i think it's like completely understandable why Jane didn't speak up when she did because when you have an advisor who's they control your whole life you know <laughs> and she she just wanted to like get her degree and become a scientist and then she just she felt like she didn't have the safety to speak out until she had tenure and so she just ended up waiting for all you know about 18 years um, to to do you know what she ended up doing which, I don't want to you know, totally spoil it, but yeah. <laughs> it's pretty amazing what she ended up doing, but it, it yeah. did take her a while, and I really think that the impetus was her daughter, you know, um, that was the real the thing that kind of pushed her over the edge.
2: Yeah, the, 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 I think this was Jane Willenbring, uh, stood out to me, this quote, what happens if I report him, what happens if I don't report him? That, that's a, that's yeah. a hor- hor- horrible dilemma, yeah. right?
3: yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she kind of, she started out, she she like did a little bit of quiet digging and she found out that he, uh, her advisor was still harassing women and that she wasn't the only one. And I think that it's just, that's so heartbreaking. I, I can't imagine, you know, finding that out and then just feeling like, oh my God, what <laughs> what can I do? Like, what should I do?
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, let's uh, turn to, and by the way, as we go along uh, here, what, the uh, next clip, in fact, is coming up in a few minutes. We'll... Illustrate that is you know it's not just uh, isolated uh, scientists here and there, uh, women scientists. It's uh, this is pretty pervasive, uh, even uh, even in today's you know quote unquote enlightened times. Um, so let's turn to uh, Sarah Freeman. Um, so why did you want to bring this film to uh, to Utah State University?
0: Yeah, well, I I had the opportunity to see this film. I would say maybe midway through 2020, sometime in the summer um kind of through another another type of event like a university kind of hosted event where you can um you know join a screening and i was i was just really i don't i don't want to say shocked because you hear about these stories you know unfortunately they happen and and just the way that the film portrayed them and and was able to kind of end with with hope and and kind of the empowerment um, of women to, to you know, address these issues. I just felt like this was a dialogue that I think would be really important to have here at Utah State to talk about, you know, what are we doing well um, and what maybe could we be better um, about? Like what, what policies do we need to put in place to kind of – um, address any sort of inequities that might be happening, or um, you know how can we celebrate the things that we 've been doing well so far and so I thought that it would be a nice productive kind of stepping off point to have a conversation about um, our local community here um, on campus and and you know statewide as well.
2: Uh, You're quoted uh, here, uh, head of the, in the the press materials here, Uh, this is Sarah Freeman. Uh, The film challenges audiences of all backgrounds and genders to question their own implicit biases and move toward change. Uh, That's the insidious thing about implicit bias, right? It's implicit. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, there are things we can do to become more aware of our implicit biases and to be, um, you know, better about not letting them guide our decisions. Um, There's a lot of really great tools online that you can look up um, to try to uh, learn more about what kind of biases you might have implicitly that you aren't aware of and, um, you know, how to find more reading material to to learn more about how to kind of unpack what you might have discovered.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Let me bring in uh, Sojourn Lim. Um, So assistant professor of sociology, um, uh, what do you think about this, this, uh, the film, the, this discussion? Uh, have you encountered uh, any of these uh, difficulties or witnessed uh, w- witnessed this?
6: Oh yes, of course. Um, so I'm studying family, and then um, the labor market inequality. When you study these topics, gender inequality is a kind of a topic you could. Um, it keeps coming back to you and then I'm in the academia and then um, I'm studying family and gender inequality and then we talk about family-friendly policies at work and um, in reality this film whole whole discussion of gender uh, inequality that women experience I mean scientists experience actually reminded me what how female professors the encounter in academia Uh, so we just talk about implicit bias for example, the gender pay gap, um, we know about it, and then still there's gender pay gap among um, college professors. Also, if you look at the proportion of the, the female and male professors, and then we saw that uh, the, gen- the gender gap is the most pronounced at the p- full professor's level. What it means, women are less likely to get promoted to the next rank. And those things are suggest that those who teach uh, students about gender inequality we are experiencing, and that we are not free from gender inequality. It's kind of ironic, but it's true.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Uh, and what are the what are the barriers? I mean, there's still in the film it it, <laughs> it, it outlines some jaw dropping, you know, behavior and, and biases, and we hope some of that's getting a bit better. But I'm sure some barriers remain. So, yes what are the, What are some of the barriers that you look at to to produce this inequality?
6: Oh there are many things like obvious things for example the the like in utah as you may know we are among the worst states uh when it comes to gender inequality, so we know that less the female students are less likely to um, enter college also among those college in louis the female students are less like more likely to leave uh the college compared to male students. So when they get the job, we know that the mommy track, maybe you have heard this, it means that uh, there's a father premium. So if men and women become parents, and then men usually um, have a higher pay salary, it's called a, a fatherhood premiums. But in contrast, women's, uh when they become parents, their salaries are get lower than um, male um, workers. We call it mommy penalty. So these kind of things is cumulative so at the beginning we see this kind of small gap but over time it graduates uh, to accumulate and at the end there's a large gap of uh, still persistent in many areas
2: mm. Well, we're—if uh, you just joined us—we're talking about uh, the film *Picture a Scientist*. We're talking with the uh, film's uh, producer and director Sharon Shattuck, also with Sarah Freeman uh, you know, from the biology department and uh, Soojin Lim uh, from sociology. So let's take a break. When we come back, we'll hear uh, more film clips, uh, sound clips from the film *Picture a Scientist*, and uh, more conversation on this
7: important topic. Following this, this is Science by the Slice. Using emerging battery technology, USU chemist Leo Liu and his students are developing an integrated design aimed at solar-powered electrification. Increasing demand for electricity in remote rural areas poses challenges, Lou says, but also creates opportunities for development of decentralized electrification systems. Compared with conventional electrical grids based on largely centralized power generation stations commonly used in developed countries, a centralized approach offers lower capital cost, a smaller footprint, and nimble deployment.
0: This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in the sciences and mathematics. Details at usu.edu science.
5: I'm Dr. Susan Madsen, founding director of the Utah Women in Leadership Project at Utah State University. In partnership with Utah Public Radio, we are relaunching and expanding our Utah Women in Leadership podcast series. We'll share research and resources about topics like imposter syndrome, gender and race, the impact of COVID-19 on Utah women and work, body image challenges, and more. Listen at utwomen.org or on your favorite podcast app beginning June 2nd.
0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in
1: February.
2: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are uh, talking with the uh, director and uh, producer of a documentary film, Picture a Scientist, uh, which um leads the viewers on a journey uh deep into uh, experiences in the science ranging from uh, brutal harassment to years of subtle slights uh, the difficulties uh, many women have in in the sciences and uh leading to uh, we're you know still losing women right along the, later in the the program uh, Sharon Shattuck will uh let's well maybe let's do that uh, right now uh this is uh, clip number 4 uh to my producer uh, this talks about the uh, the leaking the leaky pipeline anything we need to say to set right. this up or is that self-explanatory I guess yeah I think it's
3: pretty self-explanatory yeah
2: one. okay uh, so uh, so let's hear this. this this talks about the 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 you know the there's individual harm right <laughs> definitely uh, with, with individual mm. women who are experiencing this but there there's harm to the overall uh, system as well let's let's hear this is number four
8: We're making inroads, but it's just too darn slow. So, when I was a freshman in college, my best friend, who was also an engineer, and we were sort of like together through the experience, which I think was really important for for both of our um, retention in the profession. We looked around and we noticed that the classroom was about half women, and um, you know, we, I remember very clearly that we had a conversation about what is all the fuss about? Like, there's plenty of women in this classroom. Maybe it's just a matter of time. And, and this is something I still hear. Oh, it's just a matter of time. Um, and we looked around again, senior year, and there was out of 100 students, seven of us left. And we sort of realized like, oh, this is the leaky pipeline. This is disproportionate attrition.
9: STEM. We have spent a lot of resources and time to get young girls focused on STEM. Um, So we know that we've been filling the pipeline. Um, The problem is that sexual harassment actually creates many leaks in that pipeline. So we're doing a lot of work, but some of that work is actually being undone.
8: Why do you move away from a profession and choose a different one? You know, that's sort of a collection of personal choices. Um, but part of it is the culture. There's a whole body of social science that has emerged where this is actually no longer a mystery.
2: So that's a clip from the documentary film A Picture a Scientist. So, Sharon Shattuck, uh, there's a statistic that uh, was on, on screen in the film, but you can't capture in the sound uh, clip. Uh, mm-hmm. So, undergraduate uh, at least starting out, about, about 50-50, you know, equal between the genders. Yeah. And by the time you move along to master's and doctorate and then employed uh, in, you know, as a professor or something in the field, it's it's down to 20-something percent of uh, is women.
3: Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's the—I think the— The big shocking thing that we found is, I mean, just from all the research that we were reading, like, there doesn't seem to be an issue with, I mean, women are, like, really interested in science and, you know, in STEM fields, and and there are, like, a lot of, like, these studies, I mean, it depends on the different disciplines, but a lot of them are 50-50 in undergrad, and so it's, like... I think our question with the film, it was never a, a film that questioned whether women have the aptitude for science, you know, because we feel like that's a settled, you know, that's not a debate anymore. Like, of course, of course, women do. Um, it was more about, like, what's driving women out. And it seems as though it's the culture. You know, There, there's still this kind of um, feeling like you might maybe you don't belong and, and that can seem, you know, it seems like such a silly thing to say, oh, I just don't feel like I belong. But it's also just like the biggest thing, you know. It's the most important thing when you're imagining yourself in a profession or when you're going to work every day and, you know, dealing with colleagues. Um, just the way people interact with one another on a personal level is so important. So that's really what we wanted to highlight in the film through these different stories that we featured.
2: I can't remember who it was, uh, whether it was Jane Willenbring or or, or someone else. It really struck me. It was kind of an aside. Uh, after suffering what they had suffered, uh, you, know, I, you know, harassment, bullying, um, they were just musing. Yeah. They, they saw a bus driving by, and they, <laughs> and they said, yeah. I, I wonder what it would be like to be that bus <laughs> driver. it got to be better than what I'm experiencing yeah. here, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, Jane. I mean, she she really... Yeah, she she got to the point where she was really thinking about dropping out, you know. Um, and she's a brilliant, like, you know, now, and she always was. She's a brilliant geologist, and she's making waves and doing big things. But she did have a, a, a moment where she was like, maybe I should just leave. And I think that's, you know, what, one of the people that we featured in the film is actually an anonymous person who did leave, um, who was actually driven out by the same professor who who tormented Jane. And, um, and I think our, you know, a kind of a theme throughout the film is like what happens when these people leave, like the potential that's lost with people who, you know, are, are, they have their own unique viewpoints and they have this um, this perspective that could be really valuable. Like what discoveries are lost when these people leave, you know?
2: Yeah that that's boy that was impactful and you have this person in silhouette you know anonymous um but yeah. she, but she said you know this this uh, this professor who was her mentor illustrates the fact that uh, that he held her career in his hands he he controlled the funding his recommendation yeah. would would go and he basically told her you're out i'm not going to i'm not going to support you
3: And she i mean she was really like she was on her way to, you know, she was trying to become an astronaut, and she she had all of her flight training. She like one of the requirements, or the sort of unspoken requirements, is to get your PhD. And really tragically, um, her her advisor basically drew, drove her out before she could get her PhD. She yeah. went to her, you know, she went to the people um, who controlled her department, and she tried to talk to them. She tried to switch advisors. And they said, "Why don't you just leave like it's easier for everybody if you leave because he brings in so much money and so much prestige to the to the department um you know let's just keep this easy for us, you know, <laughs> yeah, and so it's just i mean her story was really hard to hear, you know and and she's done well for herself since, but you know i I couldn't help but think about what could have been you know if she had been able to fulfill her dreams,
2: yeah." Uh, so Sojung Lim, you, you talked earlier, This uh, the leaky pipeline uh, is kind of uh, an illustration of what you're talking about, these disparities, these gaps. Um, this uh-huh. is, this illustrates the reason, right, I guess, why uh, th- these numbers of women, or at least some of these women, are leaving the field by the time they get to PhD and, and teaching. Yes. Yeah.
6: And then um, it's interesting, we have to recognize there are multiple points in uh, the leaky pipelines. So at the undergraduate level and then from the field, we know that the uh, kind of uh, the sub, uh, substantial proportion of female students left. Um uh, didn't grade zero. So when they get the job, the evidence research shows that uh, even at the engineering uh stem field, female graduates are paid less than um the male gra- uh, male graduates. And then one of the reasons is that obviously in the gender pay gap. At the same time this female students internalize the cultural bias. So when they are asked about how confident they are in their job task, the female students are the report. They are less sure of themselves, even though they have the same degree and same skill sets. So um, that's one reason. Wow. Also, in reality, when we work, we have to deal with these biases, the structural biases, implicit biases. And it creates burdens. And then also women uh, scientists may feel less rewarding. Let's say we found, you, found, you found that you are paid less than male colleagues. Even you are doing, performing the same level of jobs. Also especially the women face more difficulties when they, ha- when they have families. Mm-hmm. So family responsibility and sometimes our requirements sometimes cannot be comparable. In this uh, context, usually women are voluntary or involuntary uh leave the job and sometimes they say it's my own choice we call it up- opting out i'm um, using sociological terms but this is even though you say it's my own choice or family decision sometimes you internalize cultural you know stereotyping about who should be the caregiver versus who should be the breadwinner mm-hmm.
2: That's interesting. I wonder if you could uh, expand on that. It, we, we all internalize wherever, wherever we get it, you know, popular media, people we know, uh, however we get these, you know, uh, the, these uh, biases and the, these thoughts. But that's that's internalized. And so speaking specifically about uh, women or, or girls going into this, how uh, – I guess, how do you recognize that in yourself and change that in yourself to to be able to, I guess, um, you know, consciously choose a different path?
6: Yeah, it's, it's a difficult, it's a slow process. I think what we see the, from the film is actually... Um, uh, every, the, it's everywhere, we say in society. But in stemfield it's particularly pronounced because it's very male-dominant area. And I teach social inequality in Utah State for several years. So I tell my students, first, it's a very slow process. We have to acknowledge that if we expect rapid, you know, the immediate solutions, it's really difficult. So we say, uh, but I think uh, awareness is the first step. You have to be aware of what causes this biases for example when you see women um, female uh the colleagues say i have to go back home to take care of my sick child we may think oh because she's a mom but in the same situation of uh, male colleagues said i have to go back home to take my kid to the hospital many sometimes we think oh he's a great father so it's a kind of brain uh, science too. Actually, the way we process, accept and process information, we think it's a, is a efficient because stereotyping is very efficient. We don't have to think further. So even we think agenda inequality is not a good thing. We should change. But more than often, we also kind of a internal, we have internalized this kind of process and then do not think further. So we have to think at the individual level. Am I subject to this um, implicit bias, and then am I the part of the process? That's the one thing. And then at the inti- institutional level, we have been being uh, putting lots of efforts, like uh, creating mentoring programs and then like workshops like this. That's the great things. But I think of ultimate change should start at the individual level.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, certainly uh sir Freeman uh one part of this uh, clip that we just played uh, really struck me uh, uh some of the films said we uh we put a lot of effort into uh promoting stem with with girls right girls get into stem uh and then we encounter the leaky pipeline
0: yeah i it's interesting actually when when you had asked me earlier you know what was the sort of impetus to organize this event I had actually forgotten that part of it was. Um, a result of some work that I had done as a member of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee for the Biology Department, we had, um, you know, recently formed this committee to to work and, and address some of the issues that have been raised um, over the last year of of you know political turmoil and and civil unrest and all these kinds of things. You know, what we need to really take a critical eye in, in our department and see how. How are we doing and what can we do to support students and um, especially students of minority identities and, and kind of evaluate um, what our diversity looks like in our department. And so I actually went through, um, USU makes all of this information public, which is um, really great. It's part of the, um, I can't remember the acronym, the Office of Accred- Accreditation and Advancement. Um, anyway, they have details on the the number of Uh, female undergraduate students, graduate students across the whole university, uh, broken out by department. Um, And so I went through and and just put together a really small kind of report for the department of, like, how are we doing compared to the university as a whole? How are we doing, um, you know, compared to other departments in our college? And it turned out that um, about, I don't know, about 10 years ago, we were, as biology undergraduates, uh, about 50-50 male and female and now, as of last school year, we are hovering just over 40%. Um, so we've, we've been declining um, over the last decade or so in the number of, of young women that are declaring biology as a major. But on the flip side, the graduate students that are matricul- matriculating and, in our department are um, heading upwards uh, towards 70% of our graduate students are female and so it's it's really interesting to kind of just look at the data and look at the trends and kind of see what might be going on and how can we just use this information to kind of better identify what might be, what might be contributing to that leaky pipeline or what might be contributing to the recruitment in the first place and how can we, how can we kind of address that and either, you know, keep, the, keep things going that are going well or, um, you know, kind of learn more about ourselves to just, um, you know, create initiatives to, to improve in the future.
2: Yeah, so I, I guess what uh, good news, bad news, right? <laughs> some progress, yeah. some progress, yeah. yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, so Sharon Shattuck, it, it occurs just parenthetically here uh, before we go to a break. It, it, it occurs to me, you know, some of this is systemic and uh, you know, kind of a heavier lift and, and uh, changes in society, right? Um, but some mm-hmm. some is just uh, programs that we can implement, uh, and I'm thinking of um, you know, you telling Nancy Hopkins' story there at MIT um and maybe you could talk about this briefly um at a certain point the, the, they had no daycare in central campus they put a daycare in and right. <laughs> and then so yeah. something spectacular <laughs> happened
3: yeah yeah they were they were basically i mean it was just these these little things like um you know they built a daycare center and um, and more women were able to, you know, have or feel like they could have children and, and keep their jobs. And so that was one contributing factor, um, along with monitoring salaries and, you know, uh, divvying up the lab space more you know, equally. But it, it all led to more women being retained at MIT. Oh, and another important one was recruitment and, like, keeping an eye on recruitment and where you're looking for new candidates and who you're looking for. Um, but all of these things contributed to MIT being able to – doubled their female faculty um, within just a few years, which is pretty incredible. Um, although it's still not 50 like you know, I think I, I don't actually know the number currently at MIT. I think it's maybe like thirty-five percent or so. Um, so it's still not quite, you know, it's not there. But um, but it's also like notable for MIT is that uh, a lot of this kind of hung on a few key people and key positions who got on board with this change and. And like really wanted to make this change happen, and one of them was President Chuck Best, um, one of them was Robert Burgino, who has really he, he was you know a key player in trying to up those numbers of women's faculty so it's it's really interesting how you know key allies can really make a huge
2: difference yeah well uh, the, it's uh, well worth the the viewing, so encourage uh, listeners to to check it out by the way how, how can people if you're not involved how do you, how do you get to the film?
3: Yeah. So, yeah, we, so have, we have. Oh, uh, go, go go. Well, ahead.
2: sorry. We'll have Sharon Shattuck tell us that, and then we'll go to Sir Freeman. Thank you.
3: Oh, oh, sorry. Got it. Okay. Mm. <laughs> um, you can go to pictureascientist.com dot com, and that's where we have a mailing list. You can sign up for the mailing list. Um, we'll be posting updates on there. Yeah. dot
2: com. Yeah, and I, I know obviously we want to uh, leave a lot for people to experience, but I <laughs> there's some there's even some cloak and dagger. Uh, yeah. Um, a scientist uh, going around <laughs> at night measuring room space to, to be able to prove <laughs> that women are discriminated against. Yeah. Uh, uh, That's great, good stuff. Uh, so, we're talking with the uh, film's director, Sharon Shattuck, we're talking about Picture of a Scientist. We're talking with uh, Sarah Freeman, USU Assistant Professor of, uh, of uh, Biology. So Jung Lim, USU Assistant Professor of Sociology, who's participating in the panel discussion. Uh, we'll have more following this break. Kids with nowhere else to go are
8: ending up in facilities with a history of problems. Kids fighting staff, staff fighting kids.
5: Blood on the walls, blood in the timeout room.
8: The states sending kids there have been warned. It fell on deaf ears.
3: We had a student that he was in a restraint and now he's unresponsive. But is he breathing? Um, yes, but lightly.
8: On the next Reveal.
6: Saturday at noon on Utah Public Radio.
7: Join us here on Utah Public Radio throughout the week for Utah State University Extension's Ask an Expert, featuring timely information from raising your own backyard chickens to keeping our waterways clean and tips promoting mental wellness at work. If you've missed the latest segment for the week, you can find all the Ask an Expert features on our website, upr.org, and on our UPR app.
4: Hey, it's Francis Lamb. This week, we go deep into your kitchen drawers. We talk to a bladesmith who makes knives for superheroes. We learn about a man who made himself into a legend selling vegetable peelers. And we hear from America's Test Kitchen about all the secret second uses of tools you already have. That's this week on The Splendid Table from
7: APM. Tune in Sunday at noon here on Utah Public Radio.
0: Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in February.
2: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about a documentary film Picture a Scientist. We're talking with the film's producer and director, Sharon Shattuck. Uh, we're also talking with Sarah Freeman, uh, USU assistant professor of biology, and Sojung Lim, USU assistant professor of sociology, who's participating in the panel discussion. And we're hearing sound clips from the film. Um, so I want to go uh, next to a couple of uh, sound clips, make sure we get both of these these in. These, obviously, are some parts of the film that really struck me. So uh, first of all, we're, we're going to uh, have a clip that talks about The iceberg. You mentioned this earlier in the discussion, Sharon Shattuck. You want to talk just very briefly about Mm -hmm. this and we'll hear this?
3: Yeah, yeah. This is an idea that came to us from this um, National Academy of Sciences report about gender harassment. And we thought it was just such a great visual description of what this problem is, the the
9: harassment iceberg.
2: Okay, so let's hear this. This is uh, clip number three.
9: The best estimates are about 50% of women faculty and staff experience sexual harassment, and those numbers have not really shifted over time. If you think about science, right now we have a system that is built on dependence, really singular dependence of trainees, whether they are medical students, whether they are undergraduates, or if they're graduate students on faculty, for their funding, for their futures. And that really sets up a dynamic that is highly problematic. It really creates an environment in which harassment can occur. Generally speaking, sexual forms of sexual harassment, like come-ons, unwanted sexual advances, um, those are actually the rarest forms of sexual harassment. They actually don't happen very much. Mostly you see um, put-downs. We use the metaphor of an iceberg to really get across the various forms of sexual harassment. What's gotten most of the attention is unwanted sexual attention, coercion. Those are in the public eye, and I think everyone would agree we absolutely need to address those. And then you have all the stuff that's underneath. Those are actually more than 90% of the sexual harassment, you know, the subtle exclusions being left off an email, not being invited to a collaboration where you're the clear expert. Just these little moments that make a woman feel like she doesn't belong. That's a really common experience. We found that consistent gender harassment actually has the same impact as a single episode of unwanted sexual attention or coercion. So it is not something to be ignored.
2: I just want to have uh, maybe Sharon uh, uh comment to this briefly, and then I want to get to another clip. Uh, but uh, that's the that, that last part of that, that's the money uh, quote, I think. Um, that yeah. uh, ab- Above the water, the, 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 you see the obvious examples of sexual harassment, but these other pervasive um, actions by colleagues can have just as much effect.
3: Yeah, yeah. Jane Willenbring um, said it in our film that a ton of feathers is still a ton, and you know that these little things, like you know, if you're an expert in your field and you're not being invited to collaborate or work on a research project, or um, you know, even things like like every day not being invited to go to lunch with your colleagues, like it can it can really add up over time. Um, and that's yeah, it's just it's a an interesting point um, that's good to remember, I think, for everybody in our in our work
2: um so let's hear this next uh, clip and then we get some uh, some reaction uh so uh, Sharon Shattuck, um this is Rachelle Burks who I just love she's uh she, yeah she has a spunky fun personality uh i i want to take a class from her but but uh, so yeah. <laughs> so this really this really uh, struck me she's African American right and so she experiences mm-hmm. not only as a woman but uh, racial bias um and, and so she puts on a brave face and a lot of quotes earlier in the film, but in this uh, clip she she gets a bit emotional talking about uh, experiences. Let's hear this. This is uh, number two. You
4: know, academia is especially historically marginalized. You can be very isolated. You get used to being underestimated. You get used to being treated a bit shabbily. People can insult us to our face with inappropriate language and derogatory terminology but we're the ones that are supposed to be respectful and civil it's not that you take it personally you just don't expect any different you know for a long time you try to fit or put the face forward that you are this whatever they've built science to be and you talk a certain way and you look a certain way and you try to fit into that. And even when you do all that, you're still not considered one of them. But you just get used to that. You get used to being invisible in the sciences. It's weird because you're invisible in that way, but then you're hyper visible because people are like, "But why are you here?"
2: So that's uh, Rachelle Burke's. Uh, um, so Sharon Shetik, I, I can't remember her field of study.
3: She's a chemist. A chemist. So okay. Yeah. yeah she's um, she's a chemist, a forensic chemist actually. So she's done a lot of work with, like creating these interesting so she's like she hacks printers and then um uses these strips that they they print out to be able to they're like bioassays so she can go out to like a disaster site and like test the water quality and stuff like on the spot with these kind of you know um hacked like printer strips it's really interesting so she's she's basically trying to make you know um makes these things accessible for, like, a disaster site or, like, a place where an explosion just happened or there's, like, chemical weapons or whatever. Um, it's just, yeah, her work is really interesting.
2: And then she goes out and gives talks on uh, on bias and and the, the, these these uh, items. And you you have part of that talk very powerful. Uh, we're down to about mm-hmm. uh, about five minutes left in the discussion, so I want to get final word from. I'll start with Sojung Lim uh, as we as we think about these issues. What uh, what would you like people most to think about as we go away from this discussion? Um, that's a
6: good and big question. Th- that, I think that is, and and we'll, then, we'll ask
2: you to do it in about two minutes. Yeah. <laughs>
6: But I, I think it's you it think it's a, your own problem. That's what I'm telling my students. When you think about gender inequality or racial inequality, whatever forms inequality and discrimination, you think it's not my problem if you're a mayor for example. But I think think about it could happen it, it's your sister's problem or your daughter's problem or your mom having have these issues. So to embrace it this is as if your own matters and then believe that any small uh, steps that you're making make a big, big difference in the future. So don't be discouraged and frustrated that by the slow process, and then changes are happening. So just be patient and then be part of it.
2: Oh, excellent, uh, Sir Freeman. Just uh, about a minute. What What's the takeaway? You, what's top of mind that you hope people take away from this discussion and 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 come to these events uh, with?
0: Yeah, it's a I. I don't even know <laughs> how to say it in a minute, but I do I do just want to address this question of, of belonging and the, the importance of having good role models. Um, one of the things that was really attractive to me when I was considering accepting the position to come here um, two years ago for this assistant professorship was that um, I have a uh, 100% female leadership all the way to the top of the university. I have a female department head, female um, dean of the College of Science, um, female president of the university, and I just feel like that the, the power and the representation that that gives um, those of us, you know, still working on the lower rungs of the ladder, um, I just, I feel like it's it's not uh, to be um, forgotten.
2: Yeah, yeah, excellent. And Sharon Shattuck, about a minute, what's what's your uh, big takeaway? You've, you've lived with this for, for a while, making the film, and... No, that' yeah. ones out there.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I think to, to echo what Sojin was saying, I um, yeah, like this is a this is something that, first of all, you know, for for anybody who's watching the film, um, I hope that they can feel like part of the movement and not feel like they're alone, you know, siloed and um, isolated. I I hope that this is an experience where we can all come together. Um, and also, this is something like making. You know, I think that that making science more diverse and more accessible is actually better for science. And so I hope that, you know, everybody who who thinks about these issues, men, women, you know, non-binary people um, from all different cultures, like, I hope that, that we can all agree that, like, diversifying science is a good thing for science.
2: Well, Picture a, Scientist, Picture a Scientist is the uh, film, well worth the viewing. And we've had with us uh, Sharon Shattuck, who's director and producer of the documentary film Picture a Scientist. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, uh, Sojourn Thank you. Lim, and uh, thanks uh, to Sarah Thank Freeman. Thanks, everybody. Um, and uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. Thanks for listening today.
5: Next up, it's Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Tanya Gibson.
1: I grew up the whole of my life with one dining room table it's heavy but thin angular when collapsed and smoothed out sides in the middle when extended to fit our large family it still sits in my parents home every trip we make we gather around meals piled in the middle to be served counterclockwise and as i sit time suddenly bridges and it feels just as it did all of my growing up years Towers of biscuits and bowls of gravy, taco salad mixed to the perfect nacho cheese chip to lettuce ratio, chocolate pudding pies, a work surface for canning and bread making. It was our home's heartbeat, figuratively, but literally as well, situated where it was in the upper left corner as seen from the front door. As things changed, people moved out, paint done and redone, it was the forever constant. It still is. I remember sitting in my grandmother's kitchen, not in the house she lived in while I was growing up, but the one she lived in while my mom was growing up, and sitting at the picture-perfect mid-century diner-style table that was tucked over near the door that passed from kitchen to dining room. There was a dining room table as well, but I can't place any memory where I was sitting at it, only passing by it. She brought us to this house every summer two hours away from my home and my books to make sure the house was okay and everything was sound in the months she lived away. While there, we would eat exotic things like jarred orange sandwich spread with cold cuts, grocery store bread, and strawberry soda. She'd let us walk down the highway to the dot of a town's log general store and buy candy or popsicles, a treat. I can't remember a table in the home she lived in during my youth, but I'm certain there was one. Rattan chairs, maybe? More often than not, Grandma didn't live for formality. Bowls of cereal on our laid-out sleeping bags, counting the hours by cartoons until time to go home. Grandma also didn't really cook. Maybe that's where the absence of table in my memories come from. Since I've been married, we've had four tables I can recall. A small big box model made of natural wood with matching chairs we purchased soon after relocating out of state for grad school. A big cream colored oval table handed down from my sister to replace our starter one. It felt big and important for our just starting family. And a perfectly square counter height with matching chairs that felt so grown up but soon became lost in our new home square footage. And our current and forever table, a long, dark wooden one with collapsible leaves flanked with a bench and four chairs of different colors, a little nice, a little funky, a little bit us in every way. I feel strongly about eating meals at the kitchen table anchored by a strong belief that the kitchen table is the family hub. Plates and utensils are placed properly, food and serving dishes to be passed and shared, but things also change. Time has definitely marched on from my days sitting in my childhood dining room or at my grandmother's mid-century drop-leaf kitchen table. Sometimes food is dished where it was cooked and plates taken from there. Sometimes food is dished and shared amid laughter with a favorite show or coffee table standing strong trying to live up to its calling for the evening. Sometimes food is eaten at the kitchen bar, some sitting, some standing, as we discuss the plan for the day or how fates conspired toward a fend-for-yourself meal. On those sometimes, my strong feelings tug at my guilt, and I feel I'm failing at something that I thought meant a lot to me, something that I have no need to really feel guilt over. But even on those sometimes days, we're still together. We're still talking, laughing, sharing bites off plates and bites of our day. Does it really matter if we're not always around the heartbeat of the home? If my strong feelings are about strong communities being born of the kitchen table and my family has every strong marker I could have ever wanted, why am I loath to let go of this one ideal that is only an ideal in my mind? As my family grows, I think about all of this. The goal is to share a meal and our lives. My kitchen table isn't going anywhere and will be used more often than not. But I'm also learning to let go of the not times in favor of the strong bond flexibility seemingly allows. Smooth those middles to fit my whole family, as it were, and not just me. This is Tanya Gibson for Bread and Butter. Jasmine Mesa, one of the bilingual reporters at Utah Public Radio. This year we have been working on increasing the diversity of voices you hear on UPR and that is where I come in. I produce new stories in Spanish each week and right now I've been reporting a lot of COVID-19 but as things continue to open up I will be reporting on community events and other resources. Tune in on Wednesday nights at 9 p.m to listen to my stories in Spanish and visit upr.org to read them in English.
2: Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price,
7: KUSU Logan. Also heard at UPR.org.